Hello, welcome to Adventures in Angular, the podcast where we keep you updated on all things Angular related. This show is produced by two amazing companies. The first, Top and Devs, where we create top and devs who get top and pay and recognition while working on interesting problems and making meaningful community contributions. And the second company, Envoid, which offers remote design and software development services with specialization in Angular and functional programming. In this episode, you will listen to my voice, Lucas Paganini. I'm the CEO and founder of Envoid and Chuck. Yep, I'm here. <laughs> I don't know. In this... <laughs> Got you by surprise. Yeah. In this episode, we will be talking about deployment. How do we deploy our applications? Which services do we use? Which services have we used in the past, mm -hmm. but for some reason we didn't like them or just switched to another one that we found was better? So this is what we're going to talk about here today. If you're an Angular developer, you probably need to put your application uh, in a domain somehow. So let's talk about what we use to solve that issue for us. So Chuck, if you want to start, can you tell us a little bit more about what do you use? What was your experience with deployment? Sure. So um, it kind of depends on um, how things are set up, right? Because a lot of times when we're talking about front-end applications, like I've built applications that had something like Angular, React, or Vue on the front-end, and Ruby on Rails on the back-end, or a Node Express on the back-end, right? And so a lot of times I've deployed those as kind of one deployment, right? And so it pushes everything up, does whatever build, migration, whatever it has to do for the back end, and then it would run Webpack or, you know, something else to build stuff on the front end, right? Uh, ES build, you know, whatever, whatever we're using. Um, and so those deployments, in they, they tend to go differently than, say, if you're doing like a static build of like 11.js or something like that with a, with a front end that maybe connects to Firebase or Supabase or something like that, right? And so, you know, if you're dealing, depending on what you're dealing with, it it's kind of a different process. And I've done both. Um, typically, at least in the, so I'll just start with the one I'm the most familiar with, is, which is Rails. It, it usually has its own JavaScript tool chain, right? And so I deploy the whole app. And then as part of the deployment, it just runs the build script, right, on the server. And then it just, you know, puts it where it's expected to be and we're good to go, right? Um, I've also done it um, in development, actually, with a, a Docker container that, you know, does the watch and continuously build, um, right? So you kind of get refreshed resources. And so anyway, th those all work fine, just depending on what you need. Um, as far as the other goes, you know, so if I have like a kind of a basic HTML and then most of it's built by the front end framework, um, I've deployed that to Vercel or to um, Netlify. And those tend to work fine too. Um, I used to be a huge fan of Heroku, but I, I've kind of become less and less of a fan of theirs these days. 
mainly because it used to be really easy, I feel like, and it got less easy. It got more complicated to deploy to them. Um, so it's not that they can't do it, and it's not that it's not uh, doable or whatever. But as my build process has gotten more complicated, figuring out how to get that to run on Heroku has gotten more complicated. And then if I have to connect to other services like, uh, you know, uh, Redis or things like that, because sometimes I have other database systems I need to connect to, it just, it, it got it got tricky, right? Or I had to go find some third-party service that would play nicely with it. Um, and then the other uh, issue that I ran into was I liked Heroku because I could push stuff up to it for free and run it for free. And then when I was ready to actually pay for it to scale and stuff, I could do that and I can't do that anymore. So um, anyway, th those are kind of the systems that I've used. I'm not going to go into too much detail because I'm curious what your experience is. And then we can kind of talk about the pros and cons of the different approaches. Okay. Um, one thing that I picked from your explanation, which was very detailed, there were a lot of interesting things there, is that we can kind of group things into four categories mm -hmm. and then expand. If, uh, if I'm wrong, maybe there's more. But I noticed four categories for the everything that you mentioned. So um, some of the things that you said, I would put into the category of uh, cloud provider. So mm -hmm. Heroku, Netlify, Vercel, DigitalOcean. Right. So which cloud provider do we use? Another uh, other things that you mentioned, I would put into um, how we push the deployment. So right. we can always manually push things as in the old days, like maybe even using FTP as uh, I've done many times in the in my early days as a software developer. But we can also leverage more modern structures such as uh, continuous deployment. And then inside continuous deployment, we have many options too. So do we use CircleCI? Do we use Travis? Mm -hmm. Do we use GitHub Actions? Um, and then there are other things in which are how to encapsulate your system. For example, we can use Docker to make sure that it works in all environments. But there are many cloud providers that don't require us to use Docker. They just identify what you're using. So for example, if they see a package JSON, they already know that it's a node environment and they will uh, use a node instance to run your, um, your server and they will automatically run NPM run build and et cetera. There are providers that allow us to do that and then we don't have to worry about Docker files and containerizing our mm -hmm. application because the cloud provider can do that automatically. So there's that. There are uh, There's the question of how do we encapsulate our applications before putting them into production? And then the last one is about which tools do we use to, or maybe not the tools, but the process that we use to build the thing before putting that, before pushing it into the production environment. So I saw those four categories, mm -hmm. and I think that having that clear mental model of, okay, so these are the four major categories that I would have to take into account to design my deployment process. I think we can more easily go into each one of them throughout the episode and make sure people don't get lost into all the 
the things that we'll be we'll be mentioning. So about this, I guess that I would like to start with how we encapsulate things. So how do you do that, Chuck? I, I want to talk a bit more about this too. I have a very strong opinion of how to of how I do the of how I do that personally and how I do that at Envoyed. But I want to know, do you always use Docker? If not Docker, do you use any other container solution? Or do you prefer to push that complexity to the cloud provider and just use a node environment and let the cloud provider come up with the right instance for that? How do you do that encapsulation of your system before pushing to production? So... It's, it seems like there are a few options here. I will admit I haven't really ever deployed like a Docker container to production. Um, I mean, there are some third-party open-source apps that you basically download the Docker image and run it, right? Or a Docker compose file and run that. Um, and so I've done that for those. But um, as much as I like Docker on my local machine... I've never actually turned around and, you know, sent it up to the, the cloud that way. Um, I know you can. I know there are services out there that do it. You can kind of spin up your own Kubernetes cluster and do it, but I just, I haven't. Um, it's it's pretty slick when you can, right? Because you, your Docker file essentially builds your assets, right? It You get the image, you know, you can get the image with the assets already built, there are a lot of advantages to it. You can scale it if you're getting a lot of requests. Um, the other thing that I've looked at is pushing it to a CDN and then referencing stuff off of like a, a Cloudflare or a, an AWS CDN or something like that. I haven't done that either. Um, mainly because I just don't get enough traffic to where it's, you know, it makes enough of a difference, right? My My assets loading aren't so slow that my website's slowing down um in a meaningful way so what i have done is um typically i will push the assets up to the server and then i will run the build script up there um the the other way that i've done it is yeah i've just pushed it into like a vercel or a netlify and they're usually like oh you have this framework and it's using this build system and you have your config already set up and so they just know how to run it and so I just let them do the thing, right? I um, I haven't gotten so deep into optimizing any of it that I've wanted to make you know make it make it do anything beyond that, right? So um, if I can get it to build and load quickly while I'm in development, so that I don't have to break break stride in order to wait for the JavaScript to update, then it's usually you know it'll build and deploy fast enough for production. So I'm rather lazy on this. You know, it's just like, yeah, just, hey, it works, right? So you probably have a much more regimented idea of how you do it. But yeah, I've I've typically just used the systems that are already there and just let them build it. Whether it's in my backend framework that has a way of managing assets or if it's the deployment system I'm on saying, oh, you've got this. I know how to deploy that. Gotcha, gotcha. So... Just to see if I if I understood it correctly. So you mentioned that you let the the provider uh, detect the system and install the dependencies, but you also 
uh, mentioned that you push your assets to the server and then you do the build there. So you were referring to, for example, having an, an always running instance of of a server on Google Cloud or something, mm -hmm. and then you sending those files there and doing the build. Then you SSH into the server, does the build there, and then you have the the new version running. Is that the process? Mostly, I'm too lazy to SSH in and run the build by hand. So I have a script that says, connect to the server, run these commands, get off the server. But yeah, effectively, that's that's how I do it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I already worked using that, that process before. It served me well for, um, for a very long time. Um, eventually, I got into a point where I wanted to make sure that everyone could work in all projects and nobody would have to remember how to do it or yeah. um, depend on a script that might be outdated. And I also wanted to make sure that not everyone had the permissions to log into the production server and do it. So I wanted to control the, the access to it, but I also didn't want it to make it such a gatekeeper that people couldn't put their work into production. So I wanted them to be able to put their work into production if it passed the security checks and the code review of their coworkers, but I didn't want them to have direct access to the production instance. So that led me to a path of um, continuous deployment processes. So currently, I rely a lot on GitHub Actions. Mm -hmm. Depending on the client project that we are working, we might use a different continuous deployment um, pipeline that might not use GitHub Actions because at the end of the day, uh, we are there to extend what the client has already created uh, other times we're creating from scratch, but most of the times we are uh, doing staff augmentation. So a system already exists and we are simply improving it. So maybe it doesn't make sense to move away from their current continuous deployment solution mm -hmm. and into GitHub Actions. So in those cases, we just use whatever they're using. Sometimes this is drone. Other times that might be Travis CI. Uh, it really differs from company to company. But when I have the chance of choosing which service to use for my deployment process, I always go with GitHub Actions because all my repositories are on GitHub. So it, it integrates really well. Although it's not the most complete continuous integration and continuous deployment solution, it is the one that integrates most easily with uh, the repository as a whole. So I know that I could get more features by using CircleCI, for example. I checked that, that once. But I just felt that trying to use CircleCI would be harder than using GitHub Actions, harder to mm -hmm. start. Uh, and so this is why we mostly stick to GitHub Actions. So the flow is basically this. We have some branches that, are, that have a special meaning. So for example, we have the main right. branch, which in many repositories might be called master. But uh, a while ago, 
there was a push to change the names of master to main due to historical reasons and uh, that not being a safe word to some minorities, which um, I think it was a good decision. So we have the main branch and we this branch is special in the sense that it contains the code that is in production. So every time that there is a change to the main branch, mm -hmm. uh, GitHub Actions automatically triggers a deployment process to production. And this deployment process will install all the dependencies necessary to build the application. It will... I, I will have to get into some of the other categories here, but I always... Uh, lean towards using Docker mm -hmm. because I don't want to get dependent. I don't want to have vendor lock-in, actually, so I don't want to depend on the detection that Natalie Fire, Verso, or Heroku might have. Right. I want to be able to run the, the application anywhere I want, so I always use Docker um, to encapsulate the application before deploying. And then in this build script, that runs on GitHub Actions, it will already it already comes with Docker installed. So GitHub Actions already comes with a lot of uh, dependencies installed that are very common. And then I run Docker build, I tag that build, and I push that mm -hmm. to my cloud provider, which most often than not is Heroku. Uh, we, we can get into that um, later because I have a lot to say about cloud providers, but just sticking <laughs> to my deployment process. Uh, so it's basically continuous right. deployment using GitHub Actions. And then I have, as I was saying, I have other branches that are special. So the main branch is special because everything that changes there goes is built and deployed into production automatically. But I might also have other branches that may be special. For example, in most of the projects that we do, we don't just want to have the production instance, but we also want an alpha instance. The alpha instance is good because the developer can actually see that his work is running. We can run tasks mm -hmm. and we can send it to our client, which can approve things before we put them into production. And then, so we generally have at least two environments, the production and the alpha. And we also have a branch for that. So we might have a branch called dev or maybe even alpha. And then all changes made to this branch activate uh, a GitHub action that will build and deploy that environment to the alpha production environment. But I might have others. I might have an environment for uh, betas. I might have an environment for specific releases. So release... 3.1.2, I might want to mm -hmm. have uh, an environment just running that at all times. So we have this structure of coming up with branches that will dictate special, uh, that will dictate the state of particular environments. So if we have a production and alpha environment, we'll have at least two branches, one to represent the state of each one of them. So I, I have I have questions. <laughs> I have been looking at GitHub Actions. I have not made the leap. Um, I've used like a Circle CI. Um, I've used some of the other ones that are out there. I think Semaphore is another one that I've looked at. Um, but it looks like GitHub Actions. I mean, mostly does the same thing. 
Um, you, you can do all kinds of stuff. You said you build it into a Docker container. So you're just deploying a Docker container? Yes, I am always deploying a Docker container. So, for example... Because uh, I'm kind of liking that. Because if I, if I can build a local Docker container, then it basically looks like the production Docker container. That's the go. That's the go. So what we do is, um, instead of having a lot of commands in our build script mm -hmm. on GitHub Actions, it is rather simple there. Like the, the build script on GitHub Actions, it's the workflow that we have on GitHub Actions to deployment. It is very rarely more than five, more than five steps. Uh, most times it's just three steps. Right. So the first step is build the Docker image. The second is tag the Docker image. Mm -hmm. And the third is push the Docker image to the cloud provider that we are using. So most uh -huh. cases would be Heroku. And then, of course, that if you look into the process of building the Docker image, there are a lot of steps there. Right. But they are not in the GitHub workflow. They are in the Docker file. Right. So in the repository, we have the Docker file, which says what happens when you run Docker build. So which commands should run to build that Docker image. And then we just have that locally in the repository. So if we just want to see if it's working, we just run Docker build in our local machines. So we don't, we don't depend on the build process happening on GitHub Actions or CircleCI or anything like that. We can simply run Docker build and we will have the entire build process running in our machine, which was really important to us to make it easier to debug mm -hmm. and to run staging environments locally. I really like that. So a couple of other questions. Do you have like a test to run this tests? So you do you build, run the tests and then deploy? I do, but I don't do that in the deployment process. So I have uh, workflows that are for continuous integration. Okay. So these workflows... Yeah, they are dedicated just to check mm -hmm. to see if the code is uh, is valid and if it should be approved by the continuous integration system. So I don't even allow uh, the developers to ask for a review if it's not passing on the continuous I integration gotcha. checks. Like before you get to a review, it needs to pass on the tests. So when it gets... So we won't even make it to the main branch. The branch. It's already... Yeah. Exactly, okay. exactly. For it to make to the main branch, it needs to pass the tests. Right, because it'll pass the test when you submit the PR, or it'll run the test when you sub submit exactly. the PR. Right, so then if it gets approved, it means that it passed the test, maybe it ran through the linter and got all of that stuff corrected, anything else that you're doing there, and then when it's when the PR is approved, then it's pulled into main, and main builds and deploys. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, so the other question that I have is you build the Docker image. Do you push it up to like Docker hub or something like that? And then pull the image, you know, from Heroku or, you know, in Heroku, does it pull from Docker hub or something like Docker hub and other Docker, what do they call them? Container repository. I can't remember the term that they have for it, but, um, does it do that or does it actually just pull in the Docker file and build it on Heroku. It is similar to that. So 
as you said, Docker Hub is a Docker container repository. Mm-hmm. Um, and then is Docker container repository or is Docker container registry? Registry. I, I think know, a registry is the word, the yeah. Is a place. Yeah, I also think it is because like NPM is a... Anyways, um, so we have to push the Docker image to a Docker container registry, but it's generally not Docker Hub. Right. I have never had to push to Docker Hub. So there are um, a lot out there. So yeah, the cloud provider. Yeah, the, the cloud provider has their own Docker that makes sense. container registry. So, for example, DigitalOcean mm-hmm. has their Docker registry. Um, Heroku has their own. Right. So you would push to their registry and then they would, uh, you would release the image, mm-hmm. which tells them, hey, I just pushed a new version. Now go ahead and use this new version to put that into production. Right. Um, I guess one other question that I have with this is that some systems require more than one Docker image to run, right? So maybe they have like a backend and front end or an admin and a primary app or something like that. Um, when you're doing that, do you, when you deploy, I guess you just deploy the one piece at a time unless you have some dependency that requires both of them to change, right? That's a great question. We generally use NX for all our repositories. I just say mm-hmm. generally because uh, there are some repositories that we did like more than one year ago that we haven't uh, updated to use NX yet. So maybe we have parts of the project that are in different repositories. So we, right. may, we may have a repository for, for the front and another for the back. Mm-hmm. But in all of our most recent projects, we have a single repository for the front and the back. So it's a mono repository using NX. In those cases, we will have different Docker files for each environment. So inside a single repository, we will have a Docker file for the back, for the front, maybe even for other uh, instances that we might need. And then we have the repository organized in such a way and the GitHub workflows um, in such a way that when we push something to main, it will deploy all those instances at the same time. But one thing that we are working on doing is to somehow uh, make sure that it only deploys if there was a change. Right. So if we only change the front end, then there's no need to right. uh, deploy the back end again. But at the same time, it ends up not being such an issue because Docker automatically detects that in the sense of if you do your Docker files um, well enough, if you follow all the best practices Mm -hmm. for Docker images, then trying to build the same thing twice will give you the same layer ID. That's true. So if it gives you the same layer ID, then when you try to push it to the cloud provider, the cloud provider will simply say, hey, we already yeah. have this, and then you're you're telling me to release it again, so like I'm just not going to do anything because right. it's the same thing. So it ends mm-hmm. up, uh, we get that for free, but there are scenarios where you might run the same thing twice, the same Docker build command twice, and get a different layer. Right. And that shouldn't happen, but it does happen because 
Maybe there are things that you want to install and you want to make sure that they are never cached. So for example, I always use Tiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tiny is uh, a library that encapsulates the entire application and deals with some uh, just some nice best practices for uh, killing and starting applications. For example, you should listen to SIG kill and SIG end. Um, I don't know if I forgot the right names, but there's one which is like stop the process when you right. can and the other is stop immediately and then Tiny allows me to easily handle those commands gracefully. So I put that in front of the application. Yep. So I install Tiny in my Docker files and Tiny recommends us to do the installation using no cache. Right. So that we make sure that we are getting the correct version of Tiny every time that we're installing. That makes sense. So that might lead to different layers. Yeah. Yeah. And what you were looking for was SIGTERM. SIGTERM, SIGINT, SIGKILL. Thank you. Yes. Um, That's it. SIGQ is the one that kills immediately and SIGTERM yeah. is the one that gives you some yeah. time to it says, to die, right? Yeah, basically okay. it says, um, hey, please, please die. <laughs> For lack of a better way of putting it, right? It's like, finish what you're doing and then quit. <laughs> right? Yeah. One is like, uh, shot in the head, the other is shot yeah. in the chest. So, like, you still have time to say. Yeah. But if you're, you know, if your data is somewhat fragile, like your data management or something, the uh, SIG term is the one you want. But if it's completely runaway process and you can't get it to quit any other way, then SIG kill is what you reach for. Um, and when your system shuts down, incidentally, it'll send a SIG term, typically. And but it usually has a timeout. So once it's sent the sent the sig term, if it doesn't quit within a certain amount of time, then it'll send the sig kill and reboot. Anyway, um, so that that's really really interesting. Um, man, I, re- I I love talking about this stuff because then I just get into okay. So could I do this with my apps, right? Um, because I'm, I'm a huge fan of Docker. We did the Docker, Docker deep dive book for, uh, the book club. And so I see a lot of the advantages you're talking about. Um, part of the reason that I do it the other way is mostly because I always have. And a lot of the projects that I'm talking about here were set up that way before I really got into Docker. Right. And so, um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really digging that. Um, so one other question, I guess I have. I love Docker yeah. so much, man. It, it it really is. So the advantage, just at least in my head, is you avoid the whole works on my machine, right? It's, hey, look, this thing, it, you know, it runs the way that it runs and it's got all of the same setup in both systems. And so if there are differences, they're relatively minor to the point where you almost never see them. And so then it's not, oh, well, I was running this with these libraries that are the Mac OS version of, you know, the, you know, and then it turns out that there's some vague difference between the two. And so it doesn't run or it's not as memory efficient or whatever on Linux or vice versa. Um, And so it's nice. The other thing is, is that, um, you know, if I don't have the same version of Node.js or whatever installed that you do, then sometimes there are differences there 
But if you're running Docker, it will install the same version on my Docker container as it does on yours, right off of the image. And so, yeah, it's it's really a terrific way to go. Uh, uh, if I may, Chuck, yeah. sorry to cut you, but one thing that I think it's also important to mention to the audience is all those problems, they don't exist just when you're deploying. They also exist during development. Right. And this sounds like I'm just saying something obvious, but I feel like people don't realize that because I have never seen anyone uh, other than, like at Envoy, we do that, but I had never seen uh, companies um, considering how to make their repository run locally for all their developers. I mean, we have developers mm -hmm. using Linux, developers using Mac, developers using Windows, and maybe running your system locally doesn't work depending on the operating right. system that they are that they are using. So we also have Docker set up for development environments. So if you can run it locally without needing Docker, then that's better because you'll probably be more performant for local development. But if for some reason you're trying to run a project that was built by Envoy, uh, so it's more for internal projects, so I mm -hmm. don't think that anyone from the outside would be able to see that. But uh, for example, we hire a new employee and for some reason he will work in a project and he can't run that project in his machine because his operating system, whatever. Uh, he can actually because we also do a Docker file that is supposed to be used for development environment. Yeah. Run that Docker image and then it will set up all the dependencies that you need to work on that repository as a developer. Mm -hmm. So you can also use Docker for development. The yeah. issue there is that it's usually less performant in terms of managing files. So you, for example, uh, if you're on macOS, it's really a big issue because if you do an NPM install, it will be so much slower just because it has to save a lot of files to disk and the way that the macOS uh, driver works with the Docker driver on Mac is very, very slow. Uh, so that's the only hiccup, but it works. Right. And that that's one thing that I've run into that's different from my, I guess, development environment versus my production environment is that the development environment, typically I have like a watcher that watches for file changes and rebuilds, right? And I don't want or need that in production. And so um, that's why you would have two setups, right? Your development is, hey, you know, refresh the build whenever things change. And the production is build the files, put them where they got to go, you know, deploy it that way. And then it just statically serves the assets. So do you use, yep. I'm curious, I haven't really looked at this, but does Vercel or Netlify, do they, like if you pass them, a, can you pass them a Docker image instead of saying, here's the Git repository? Um, honestly, I haven't personally looked into Vercel and Netlify. Uh, my company as a whole has, so I have developers that have used Vercel and Netlify. Um, but they they just use that for initial versions of the system. So they were just bootstrapping and they wanted to, to go fast. So maybe they are in a 
uh, hackathon stage. Uh-huh. So we just get together and do things fast. But then as soon as the project matures and get to a state where we want to actually support and maintain it and document and polish all edges, then we we use the same structure in all our projects. And the structure that we use uh, involves pushing things to Heroku. So I don't know how they how can you push your Docker images to Vercel and Netlify, but I can't imagine that being too different from the workflow that I have with Heroku. They probably have their own Docker container registry, and then you push your image there, and they will simply run that image. I imagine that because I can't imagine it getting easier than that. So I just looked it up. Um, Neither Netlify nor Vercel will deploy Docker images. That's so, yeah. So unless unless it's newer than the information I'm finding on the internet. Yeah. Um, mm. So I want to discuss a few other deployment options because I like the way you've got that set up. And, and honestly, um, I'm really tempted to move some of my applications to this kind of a setup. Um, just because of kind of the ease of setup, the ease of running, all that stuff. The other thing is, is like, mm-hmm. um, I wind up playing this game where, cause, and this is just another thing that comes out of using Docker, is that a lot of the Docker setup, um, what you do is you then supply the config through the environment into the Docker image, right? And um, so you can tell it what, environment variables to set up and stuff like that is essentially how you get them in your application. Um, when I'm deploying to just like a VPS, the the thing that's interesting or that gets interesting there is that I still have to provide that. And so what I often wind up doing is putting some kind of config file on the file system or something like that. And the difference is, is that um, I can manage the secrets in my deployment system, right? So if I'm deploying to Linode or to Heroku or to something else, right? They give me the options of giving them those um, values. And so they're all stored in the cloud. And if somebody, you know, hacks into the Docker image, they're not going to get that information. Um, Not as easily anyway, as they could just by hacking into the VPS and pulling that config file off. And all of a sudden they've got access to my AWS buckets and my uh, database password and the whole nine yards. Um, so, uh, you know, that that's another thing that's kind of interesting about it that, that I like um, with a lot of this stuff. It, it provides kind of an extra layer of security. And the other thing is, is that um, typically, so in your Docker file, you tell it to base it on like Ubuntu latest or something, right? And so if there is an update to the Ubuntu image, right, they find some security, some zero-day security vulnerability, then you get that that for free next time you build, right? Because it'll pull it down, it'll add that layer to your image, and then, you know, build from there. And so you get the advantage of, of the update. Um, one thing that I found with a lot of these VPSs is that I have to periodically either log in and run updates or I have to set up some kind of auto update that doesn't always capture everything that needs to be updated. 
And so I'm, I'm really digging this for a lot of those reasons as well. Um, but yeah, let's talk about some of the other deployment options. So you can deploy your app directly to Heroku without the Docker. Um, DigitalOcean has one. It's the uh, app platform, um, which I've also used. And there are a bunch of other ones. Uh, the one that actually runs the most seamlessly for all the complaints that I put out about Heroku was Heroku. Um, the app platform for some of the stuff that I was doing on it, it just had some minor weird issues. And I'm sure they've figured a lot of them out by now, but it's it was just a newer product when I was using it and they just hadn't quite nailed down all of the different things that I needed it to be able to do seamlessly. And so I continued to deploy to VPSs. Um, and then, yeah, Netlify and Vercel also, right? They they grab your stuff and build it in a similar way um, without necessarily using the Docker file at all. I'm just curious: have you have yeah. you done much of that? Was that what you were doing before, more or less? Or there was a period where, uh, and that's how I initially got into Heroku, mm-hmm. which was by using the automatic build detection system that Heroku has. So at first, that was really good for me because. Um, quite frankly, at, at that time, I knew shit about deployment, so <laughs> I needed it to be very, very easy. Well, that's and how we all start. We make it work easy. and then figure out how to make it good, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Thanks for making me feel good about this. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, so so at the time, I just needed something that would be easy to deploy, and Heroku offered me that through this format of uh, automatic uh, environment detection. So Heroku would automatically detect that it was a Node.js uh, repository mm-hmm. and it would install the dependencies, uh, run the build command and run npm start. And that's how I got into Heroku. Over time, I got more comfortable with Docker and I started realizing the issues that I would have uh, in the current deployment system that I had with Heroku. And then I started moving into a, a containerized system, still in Heroku, because I noticed that I could do that there, and it was fairly easy. Um, mm-hmm. So I stick, I stuck to Heroku, but I started using Docker to encapsulate the application. But at the beginning, I was uh, using that uh, automatic detection system, yes. And I think there are more considerations to be made about this, because I don't want to make the case that the best solution is the one that I have because, for example, um, there are very, very modern situations in which you wouldn't be able to publish a Docker container. And I will get into that now. What I mean is edge computing, for example. Mm -hmm. So I haven't seen any environment that allows you to just have... um, serverless, to just be serverless, you just have functions in the cloud and you can specify the Docker environment in which those functions should run. I have never seen that because it doesn't make sense with the business model of cloud functions. Cloud functions is like you choose one of the environments that is popular. So you have like a Node.js environment or a Ruby on Rails environment um, Java environment, mm-hmm. I don't know, but like you choose the environment and then you write your code 
such that it will run in that environment, period. So if you had to specify other dependencies to be installed to run your function, then I don't think it would make sense for the the cloud provider to allow that because they would have to dedicate more time to instantiate your um, your the server to run that, and they don't want that. What they want is to have a single computer that can quickly uh, load, spin up the environment, and run multiple functions from different applications. So that wouldn't work for this model. So if you're looking into serverless and just cloud functions, then I don't think you will be able to have a clear Docker environment that you push to production if you want that environment. But if you are pushing, if you are um, having actual servers um, and you, you have an entire machine that is all the time running just for your application or not an entire machine, but at least a container instance that is running just your application, Mm-hmm. then I would highly recommend using Docker instead of having a continuously running instance because you would have all the problems that you were mentioning, Chuck, which is you have to periodically do OS updates. It's like, uh, I'm, in the beginning, it sounds easier, but then you start losing so much time to keep that up and to do maintenance on that. So I just think that even though it's easier to get started this way, in the long term, it's so much easier to maintain and you will spend a lot less time if you just put things into a Docker container and have ephemeral instances. So Mm -hmm. you push a new one and then you queue the old one. So you have to build your entire repository knowing that whenever you push a new instance, you will queue the old one. So you have to make sure that uh, databases are separate because you don't want to kill the database. You have to have backups, uh, uh, all of those things, you have to have them um, really well set up so that you don't have any issues when you queue your old instance to spin up a new one. But once you do that, everything else becomes so much easier than having to update the OS and maintain a single server server instance. But yeah, if you want serverless and edge functions, then you, you can't go with that route. So you really need to consider all that is not a one-size-fits-all solution, unfortunately. Man, I think that I underrated how many topics we would have to cover about deployment. I mean, we haven't even uh, talked about half of everything that goes into a deployment process, and we're already like more than one hour of podcast. I think we're going to have to have a part two, three, and four, maybe ten parts. (laughs) Well, the thing is, is that, you know... it gets complicated, right? And I think a lot of times we, I guess we just kind of underestimate or overestimate, you know, how complicated it is. I think for people who aren't familiar with things like Docker or some of the other tools that we've talked about, it sounds really complicated, right? And then the people who are familiar with Docker, it's like, you know, you understand a handful of concepts about Docker and, and then it's like, oh, this is pretty simple stuff. But then it's, okay, um, what about this? What about this? What about that, right? So, okay, now I want it, um, I want gzipped, you know, I want it to transfer gzipped because it uh, decreases the bundle size. I want it to, um, 
I want it to do this kind of minification, not that kind. Um, I want, you know, and, and all these other things that go into deployment, right? How do I know that it deployed properly? How do I know what version is running out there? I mean, there are all kinds of things that go into this that just, you know, and to a certain degree, like the, the, the Docker stuff um, abstracts a lot of that away. But still, it, you know, and then it's, okay, well, how do I run it out there? Do I have to run it on like a Kubernetes cluster in the cloud? Or, you know, Heroku sounds pretty easy, right? But I don't know if I can afford Heroku if I start to scale, right? And so there's stuff there too, right? It's like, okay. Because what I'm looking at, honestly, because um, I've been looking at, okay, how would I do this with my Rails apps, for example? And I'm realizing that, you know, with some of the dependencies and the way that some of that's set up, um, it's not just a simple push the image into a Docker registry and then pull it back out and stand it up, right? Because I've got also stand up and manage the database engine. And, you know, I have a Redis engine for my job queue. And then I've got a worker, you know, workers that I've got to run to. And yeah, anyway. It's 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 really interesting to just see how this can all go. Yes, it can definitely get super complex. And we, we haven't yeah. even mentioned what I do when I have something that needs to scale really, really fast. So, for example, if you really have a lot of microservices, then how do you deal with that? Because at some point, you can just have... Uh, like a front and a back, and then you push them and all good. But what if you have things that shouldn't be uh, open to the public? What if you have instances that should be only on a local network? So you have, for example, a Kubernetes setup, and you have microservices that should be only accessible inside the local network, but they should not be uh, accessed directly using HTTPS or anything else from the end users. So it's something internal to the backend. So at that point, you, uh, I would go into Google Cloud Platform and have a, a Kubernetes cluster. So it gets so, so, so much complex. And I think we will have to talk about this again because we haven't even yeah. touched on CDN and DNS. Like, yeah, There's so much to cover. I did want to get into CDNs, but yeah, we'll have to get into that later. Um, I think this is probably a good stopping point if we want to move into the other segment segments of the show. And then, yeah, uh, let's just plan on talking about this in a few weeks if we have an open spot. All right. So regarding promotions, uh, what do you have going on, Chuck? All right. So... I've been talking about like the book club and some of the video series that I've been working on putting out. I think I've also mentioned like conferences and workshops and stuff like that. Um, I have a business coach that kicked my butt and basically said, you're trying to do way too much, right? Because I was like, I can't even get to half the stuff I need to do. And he said, well, then you need to, uh, you know, you need to eliminate half the stuff you need to do basically. Um, and so... I've been moving all of the premium content on top end devs over to a platform called circle.so. And um, so I've moved the book club over. If you have a full membership on top end devs, uh, you've also been invited into the, the circle setup. Um, we're also incidentally moving all of the show prep over to circle. So um, 
Yeah. So if you're a member in Circle, it, you'll actually see posts come up that say new episodes scheduled for, you know, Adventures in Angular with so and so. Like we have uh, Danny Paredes and uh, Dan Walleen that have set up uh, episodes, right? So those those are already in Circle right now. And so then we can start having conversations in there and say, hey, you know, hey, Danny, what do you want to talk about? And so if you're like, I really love Danny's article on the thing, right? You can just say, hey, I think Danny should talk about this. Um, and, or, you know, same thing with Dan, Walleen. Um, so as we get those kind of lined up and, and moving, um, that's, that's one instance where um, you can come and get involved. Now, I'm, you can get into it for free. Um, I, I've, I've left that open. I'm probably going to have some content in there that's just just for the community there. Uh, one of the things I'm looking at doing is actually just recording a quick video saying, hey, here's what I worked on today. Um, you know, and you just get that as part of the community. And then all of the paid things will be in there. So as I put out courses, put out the the video series and stuff like that, those are going to go in there. Um, my focus at this point is just getting the video series going and then having regular meetups for each of this, the series, right? So um, I, I lately, the thing that people keep coming at me with stuff for is React. And so you know, I'll probably do a React series before an Angular series just by virtue of where people are at. Um, but I'm going to put up a JavaScript series. I'm going to put up a DevTools series. We're going to be going over a whole bunch of Docker stuff. Um, as part of it, Docker, Git, VS Code, you know, those kinds of things are all going to be in there. So um, I'm planning on covering GitHub Actions as I learn about them. So um, keep an eye out for that. I'll, I'll announce it once it's up. It'll probably be within the next few weeks. So um, there's that. And then the other thing is, is I am looking for another contract. Um, the contract I've been working for the last year and probably three months um, is coming to an end. So yeah, I'd like to be able to pay the bills. Um, a little longer than that while I build up top end devs. So, um, yeah, if you know anyone who needs a highly experienced Rails developer or uh, not so highly experienced Angular developer who's a highly experienced Rails developer, I, I you know, I'm your guy, right? Um, just let me know and I'm happy to pick up that work. Um, I pick up stuff pretty quickly. So, what I don't know about Angular, I can learn. Um, or if you know somebody that, you know, like I said, I'm I'm spending a bit more focus on React. So if you, you know, if you're in that position, you love Angular, but you're doing React and your company needs another developer, let me know. Uh, my email is chuck at topendevs.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, I generally have two promotions. So I always promote uh, Envoy, of course, and my web animations course. Uh, today, I think I will mostly focus on Envoyed because everything that we said here today, I think that it, it it's so close to what we do. I mean, it's not just so close. It is exactly what we do. So if you were listening to this and you thought, oh, I super wish that my project was set up that way. I wish that I had people that could help my company to do that work because we don't have someone that that knows how to set the to set up those things then well that's easy you can just go to envoid.com 
uh, talk to us and we can see what uh, we can do. And also, if it doesn't make sense for us to work together, we will simply tell you like, hey, I don't think we're the best option for you. So there's literally no risk. We are not the kind of company that will try to push a sale, that will try to force a sale to a client that doesn't make sense. So if we just realize that, hey, uh, actually, you might need something that another company could do better, then we'll just tell it to you. But the cool thing is, if you want something that we feel that we can really do it super well for you, then we can work together. So if you want a React project, then sorry, but we don't have that expertise. But if you want an Angular-based project, if you want to set up an X, if you want to set up um, CI and CD automations, like we can do all of that for you, for your company, for whatever project you are working on. So check us out at unvoid.com. And yeah, this will be my promotion this time. Regarding picks, I have one pick. It is on a Bluetooth speaker from Ultimate Ears. It's called Mega Boom 3. It's been around for a while now. It's not a new speaker, but it's a really, really, really good one. And I have it for a while now, and it never failed me. I'm showing it here on the screen if you're seeing this on YouTube. Uh, I have mm -hmm. the red one. There are multiple colors. And it's so cool. I mean, it's 360, so it's, you can hear it in all directions. You don't have to point it to your ears. You can just put it in the middle of the living room and everybody's listening to uh, high-quality uh, music or whatever. And it's also uh, waterproof. And not just waterproof, but it actually... I forgot the, the word, but it, it it won't go down into the water, okay? So oh, it will float. Right. Jeez, I forgot the word float. So if you just throw it in a pool, it will float and keep playing music, which is super cool. Have I ever uh, thrown that into a pool? Never. Will I ever do that? Probably no, because I don't want to test it out. But... It, seems like it's like it does that their commercials show that so um i trust it it's highly resistant i have this for like four years never failed me so yeah that would be my pick ultimate ears mega boom three nice i think my wife has the mega boom two i don't know we've had we've had those for a long time and uh yeah it looks a bit different than that but yeah it's it's the ue mega boom is what she's got one of those so it, they're great speakers they sound terrific i'm going to jump in with some picks i usually do a board game pick and i am not going to disappoint um this is actually a card game so maybe i did disappoint uh the card game is called the crew the search for or the quest for planet 9 um it is a uh three to five player game a uh, board game geek says two to five player game but the um the box says three to five player and i don't know what it would look like with just two players anyway so um the way you play it is um if you've played other games where you know you play cards and you take tricks right so you play the highest card to get the trick um it works the same there are four colors there's uh 
pink, blue, green, and yellow. And then there's a fifth suit, which is the black suit, which is the rockets. And the rockets are the Trump, right? So one, two, three, and four is all it goes. The rest of them are one through nine. Um, whoever has the four of rocket goes first and ha- and they become the commander. And then what you're doing is you're trying to complete quests every hand. And so, and if you don't complete all the quests, then you have to start over that that round. And so um, what happens is it'll tell you what cards to put out and sometimes they have little uh, chips on them. And so the card is whoever winds up. So there are two decks and the one is the quest deck and the other one's the, the cards you play with. And so you'll flip over like three cards out of the quest deck. And, and then the commander takes one, the person who had the four, and then it goes to the left and everybody else takes one. And those are the cards that they need to take in their tricks. And then if you have a chip on it, that's like a one, it means that one has to be taken first, right? And then if there's one with a two on it, it has to be taken second. It doesn't have to be taken in the first trick and second trick, just first, second, third, fourth, fifth. Um, there are also ones with arrows on them. Um, what that means is that those can be taken, uh, the one with one arrow has to be taken before the one with two arrows on it. But if you have a third card that doesn't have a chip on it, that one can be taken in any order within those right so it could be taken first it could be taken between them or it could be taken last and anyway it's it's really fun um i mean i basically explained the whole thing to you there's a book that has all the quests in it so you just start on quest number one and work your way up there are 50 quests um anyway board game geek ranks it as a weight of 1.98 so casual game right i i basically explained the entire game to you right there um it says 10 plus on, on the age. That's probably about right. We were playing it with the kids and they, they were fine. I don't know if my seven-year-old would be able to, you know, figure out the strategy. And there's a lot of talking, right? Well, if because so, you can't talk about what's in your hand. So you can't tell people that you have the card that they're looking for or whatever. But you, but you can. And you can't also like strategize knowing that you'd be able to you know, try and influence people to do a thing, but you can say, you know, whoever has the this could play this if somebody else did this, right? Um, and, you know, and so you're you're constantly discussing how to get people the, the right cards. And anyway, it was fun. It says it's 20 minute uh, per round. That's probably about accurate too. Some of them, like everybody's cards line up with their hands and it's a 10 minute round, right? Because you, you go around three times and you got all the cards. And so then you're done. Um, but some of them, you really are kind of staring at your cards and looking at each other because you got six white uh, blue cards and there just aren't enough cards for it to go all the way around six times for everybody to capture those. So now you're trying to figure out, okay, if you take a pink trip trick and I can throw a blue card on it, you know, then you can get your card kind of thing. Um, and so those ones tend to take a little longer than 20 minutes. But anyway, fun, fun game. Really enjoyed it. Probably pay, played like 25 rounds um, with my sister-in-law and her husband while they were here with my wife. Um, so I'm going to pick that. And then um, you were talking about like speakers and stuff and, and water. And that just reminded me. So um, I'm going to do, I'm going to pick something about the triathlon training and then I'm going to pick another uh, two pieces of equipment that I'm using. So um, I'm training for triathlons. 
Um, I'm actually doing a triathlon a week from Saturday uh, here in Utah. Uh, but anyway, when I go to the pool and swim, um, my workouts are on my phone and I used to just print them off, but I, it was like, I'm printing one off like every third day and, you know, and then I have to, you know, I don't want to leave it where it's going to disintegrate in the pool and I don't want to right? And so I figured out that it was easier just to read it off my phone while I'm in the pool. But of course, you don't want your phone right next to the pool because uh, phones and water just don't mix. So I got one of those waterproof, they almost look like Ziploc bags, except they have little tabs on the top that lock it shut um, and, and make it waterproof. And so I've been using that. So I just slide my phone into it um, and just have it on on the side of the pool. Uh, the other trick I use is if you open up the accessibility options on your iPhone, you can turn on what's called accessibility mode. And then what you can do is you can tap the power button, the button on the side three times. And what it does is it locks the phone into the app that you're currently using. In other words, you can't exit the app, which means that if somebody walks by and sees my phone sitting there and tries to fuss with it, the only thing they can mess up is my workout app, right? They can't get into my contacts. They can't make a phone call. They can't do anything else with my phone unless they can tap the button three more times and then enter my passcode to exit accessibility mode. Um, we figured that out because it's nice when you're like putting a show on your phone for your kids. It's like, okay, well, they can't get out of the Disney app or whatever. And so I don't have to worry about them goofing with my other stuff you know, messing with my calendar. So uh, that's pretty nice. And then I got a set of headphones that are waterproof. They're bone conduction headphones. They are Bluetooth. And it turns out that Bluetooth, once you're underwater a couple of inches, Bluetooth doesn't work. So I can't stream music to the headphones, but I can load music onto the headphones. It's got eight gigs of storage on it. And so that's nice when I'm swimming, if I want to listen to some music or something. Um, they work better with ear earplugs in. And I swim with earplugs any, anyway because I get swimmer's ear. I get water stuck in my ear and it takes hours for it to come out. It drives me crazy. So anyway, so I really like those. I'll put a link to those in the show notes. They were about $80, um, but they work really nicely. So anyway, uh, those are my picks. Dude, you had a lot of picks this time, man. Uh, like that one to block the cell phone was really interesting. I know a couple of people from my company that will be Really happy to know about this, especially to block things from um, babies playing with the cell phone and et right. cetera. Really interesting. So handy. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think that was it for today's episode. Thank you so much for sticking with us up until the end. Uh, for you that stuck with us up until the end, this is like Marvel movie credits. Uh, we <laughs> will be rolling out new thumbnails for the episodes and they look so sharp. So Yeah, they look great. Uh, yeah. So check out the thumbnail for this episode and for the next ones that will come. Everything is revamped and we will be doing even more and more because this, which is already the most popular podcast in the world about Angular, is about to get even better every time we want to make this like the default thing that every Angular developer listens to. So 
yeah, we'll be doing a lot of improvements. And if there's anything that you think could be better in the show, we want to hear from you too. So you can either send your feedback to me or to Chuck. So to me, you can just go in my social media. So it's at Lucas Paganini on Twitter and Instagram. The links to it is also in the description uh, for Chuck. Uh, you can also see his Twitter uh, and other social medias in the description. So yeah, if there's anything that you think could be better, please let us know. Like this show is made by us, but it is for you. So let us know anything that could be better and we will uh, see what we can do to make it so. All right. Thank yep, you. Absolutely. And One other I'll thing I just you. want to add with that is, um, I mean, I've been podcasting for 15, eight, seven, six, 16, 17 years. Um, a lot of people just assume that I just know what to do. You know, it's like I, Chuck obviously knows he's heard everything. Um, what I'm finding is, is uh, as I talk to people, like the thumbnail thing, right? Um, it just wasn't something that was on my radar because I just have settled into a way of doing things. And so I like the feedback. I like being pushed on this stuff. So don't feel like it's, oh, well, you know, they're pros and whatever, right? Feel free to give us feedback. This would be better. This would be nice. I like this. I don't like that because we're constantly looking to improve and it may be something that just hasn't appeared, you know, something that I haven't heard or Lucas hasn't heard that that really works for podcasting so anyway definitely definitely all right thank you and i'll see you next week Bye. max out everybody <laughs> <laughs>